back to MinAdopts Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families as well as professionals. My name is Sunny Smish, and I'm an education coordinator at MinAdopt. And I'm Chris. I too am an education coordinator here at MinAdopt. And today we are talking with Candace Cahill, author of Goodbye Again. Candace is a first mother and late discovery step adoptee who grew up in rural central Minnesota. She wrote a beautiful, heart-wrenching memoir about losing her son twice, the first time to adoption and the second not long after reuniting with him. Yes, yeah, so Candace, you know, I read your book and cried numerous times. So thank you for sharing your story to help adoptees. Um, and, and we're so happy to have you here to share your journey. Um, would you like to just go ahead and start at the beginning of your story and let us know how your experience can help adoptees understand the birth mother experience. Absolutely. And thank you both for having me again. I, I appreciate that very much. Um, so I did grow up in Minnesota, although I currently live in Alaska. Um, I moved here partly to escape everything from that happened in Minnesota. But um, I, my stir, story with adoption and relinquishment began when I was 20. I got pregnant. Um, I had a boyfriend. We moved in together. And uh, I just assumed that we would uh, go through with parenting. Um, not We weren't planning to get married or anything, but uh, I had lots of family relations, a sister and, and cousins that had gotten pregnant in their teens, late teens, and, and they kept their children and parented. That's just what you did. Um, whether your boyfriend stayed with you or not, uh, or whether you were married or not. So that's uh, what I figured would happen with me. Um, but when I was about four and a half months pregnant, my boyfriend uh, suggested we go, go to counseling. Um, and the way that he framed it was such that it was parenting counseling, that we would, we would learn the skills needed to parent. And, and I was very happy to hear that um, because like my sister's boyfriend had bailed and cousins' boyfriends had bailed. And I, I thought this is a great opportunity, right? But when I got to the agency, discovered that it was an adoption agency. So they were offering decision-making counseling is how they framed it. Uh, but I, I felt set up. Um, but I continued to go to see the counselor because the woman that I worked with was very warm, very caring. Um, she ended up really kind of filling a mother role for me, which I didn't have. And, and I needed that. Um, so the counseling, uh, what ended up happening was the counseling was, in my mind, looking back on it now, coercive, but it was designed to get me to look at basically everything that was wrong with me and everything that was wrong in my life and why I would not necessarily be a good candidate as a parent. Um, so they had me, I mean, there were things, things about it that were great, like budgeting. They have you go through a budget and figure out how everything costs, you know, diapers and formula and how you get to work and all of those things. That was, that was great. But on the heels of that were multiple uh, exercises that uh, had me look at my family history. So I come from a pretty rough background, um, uh, neglect and sexual abuse and alcoholism and drug addiction and violence and all of these things. And, and there was a, there's a very vivid moment um, when I'm at one of the sessions with the counselor and she's got this page that I had taken home and done that was like a, 
almost like a uh, family tree, but it was a family tree of problems. So you were supposed to have these boxes and in the box, you put a name of a family member and then, and then in within that box, you name all of the things that were connected with them. So this person was an alcoholic and a drug addict and they, you know, were violent, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these boxes were filled with all of these people in my family that I could trace back. And I remember vividly sitting in that room and, and looking at the, she had it on her lap, right? We were facing each other. She had it in her lap and I looked at it and it was, it was this moment of shame, just so much shame. And, and it was like, obviously I am not qualified. I mean, if, if the, what I felt like was happening was this was an example or proof that I was destined to repeat what had, what I had lived with and what had happened to me. And I could see it, you know, because it went back generation after generation after generation. And at that point in time, I wonder now if she had presented opportunities on how to learn, you know, how, how do you change those patterns? Because I do think that there's, it's easy for people to re repeat the patterns if you're not given the tools to change. And she didn't offer any tools. On the heels of that came, but we have wonderful parents. We have a whole bunch of people that would be perfect for your child. And, and they are, they're married and they have money and they have a big house and they have all the things that you never had. And it's just right there for you. Um, so I was like, well, okay, you know, uh, that seemed like a smart thing to do, right? Because I wasn't good enough, but other people were. And then on the heels of that came what really, really kind of pushed me in the direction was you can pick the parents. You can pick the parents and they will send you updates. Uh, once a year, you'll get letters and, and, and pictures and you'll be able to know that your child is okay. And that was really the, 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 the lynch for me, that linchpin that, that really pulled it together for me. And, and I was like, okay, as long as I can pick people that are completely opposite from me, you know, my list of things that qualities that I wanted were things that I never had. And, um, and then be able to know that they, they will follow up on the promises that they made um, really made the difference for me. At, at this point, I'm about eight months pregnant. And, and Candace, can I ask really quick too? Yes. Anytime. Did your boyfriend have like, was he given those same questions as so, you were together yeah, so, and separate or? So after the, like the first or the second meeting, the counselor split us up and she, 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 she encouraged us to come together too, at, at, but, but also have individual counseling. And that was partly because he was clearly wanted to relinquish and I clearly wanted to parent and we were, we were bickering, right? So she thought it would be better for us to be separate at least a little bit. And, and that was, I think, a smart move. Um, we ended up breaking up when I was about six months pregnant because he made it very clear and his family made it very clear that they wanted relinquishment. And so we, yeah, I ended up moving home to my family and living in the basement um, while I was pregnant and continued to go to the counseling. He pretty much did not. He, he quit going because there was no reason for him to go, right? Um, but when I came to the conclusion that 
adoption was was the way I was going to go. And oh, I should point out his mother called me when I was about seven months pregnant, seven and a half months pregnant, just before I made the the, the decision to relinquish. And she basically said, if I chose to parent, she would fight me for custody and she would never let me see my child. And she made it very clear because they were from a wealthy background that any judge considering me and considering them would pick them because I didn't have anything. Right. And I, I didn't know any better. I didn't know. I, I didn't understand. I mean, I was at this point, I was 21, but I was a very naive and young 21. Um, I didn't understand that I could, I could um, get, get money from him, like child support. I, I didn't understand any of those things. And it wasn't, it wasn't given to me as information. So when she did that to me, that was, it was another piece of, of, uh, you know, tearing me down. So when I did make the decision at about the eight months pregnant that I was going to pursue um, adoption, um, then he came back in, we went together and looked at files to select the parents. And so we agreed on the parents. And then the, basically the day that, um, that we signed over our parental rights, he went in before me. So I, I, the last day I saw him was the day that we picked parents. Um, but he signed away his rights and then he closed his file. And he, as far as I know, he doesn't even know any of the details of, uh, of Michael's life. So I'll back up a little bit. Um, so after making that decision, um, to relinquish. I'm about eight months pregnant. I, I actually really felt relief because I, at least I knew what was going to happen. I didn't, I didn't feel like I was floundering. Um, and I, that last month of pregnancy was actually some of the most beautiful experience I had. I, I really enjoyed the the experience of growing this new life in my body and and it was a beautiful thing and I wrote a long journal with all of my reasons and all of the things that I wanted him to know um, that went with him when he was um, when he was adopted and um, and just as as best I could try to explain to him why I was doing what I was doing um, my uh, my mother, I was living with my mother, like I said, she was not very helpful <laughs> at all. Um, and we were not very communicative. Um, but when I went into labor, she went with me to the hospital. Um, I ended up having a C-section, which was wonderful because I got to spend five days in the hospital with him and uh, hold him and sing to him and... Uh, love on him and again try to explain to him um, why I was doing what I was doing. Um, it was both some of the most beautiful days of my life and the hardest days. And then leaving him, um, when I left the hospital, I made it very clear to the social worker that they couldn't take him. I needed to be the one to walk away. So I remember very clearly being rolled out in the wheelchair and getting picked up by my friend and him being sitting with the social worker. Um, and, uh, 
just making that that break. But being the one to walk away, I, I couldn't have them take him from me. I don't know if that makes sense, but again, I I was I feel like when I look back on it now, I was searching for anything I could to feel like I had some control because I felt completely out of control most of the time. I felt like everything was happening to me rather than me doing things. So that was one of the things I did. When I, when I got home, um, he, he was required to stay in foster care for 21 days. So I had time to change my mind, which I think as hard as I know that is now for to infants to be torn from their parents and put into foster care, I still think it was wise for them to give me time to change my mind. I did not change my mind. Um, when I signed over my rights and I, I came home that day, I rode the bus home. Um, I walked into the house, my, my mom's house, and, and she basically turned to me and said, he's dead to me now. And oh. our relationship um, basically completely severed. So I lost my son and my mom kind of on the same day. And I left and we didn't talk for a very long time. And uh, I went to a friend's house. I remember being on the couch at her house. Um, she was in college and I don't remember leaving the couch. I just remember being there for two weeks and wailing and crying and screaming and, and trying to give myself permission to grieve. And then I turned it off. And then I decided that if I, since I did this, the only thing that I could do would be to change my life and make sure I don't repeat those patterns. That part of relinquishing and placing him in a better home was to give me also an opportunity to do better. Can I so, nudge you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, what advice would you have for the parents of birth mothers? How can they help you? Like how could they have helped you? You know, I think that probably the, the most important thing would be to be available, to talk through what's happening, what's going on um, beforehand, talking about what really what the options are. I mean, my mother and I never talked about anything, anything. Like, I don't even, I don't, yeah, I don't remember talking to her ever about anything related to being pregnant and having a child. And I think that that would be one of the most important things that they could do is to be present and be available. Because, I mean, like with my mom, I think, I mean, when I look back now, I think if she had beforehand talked to me about what it takes to have a child, raise a child, even though I feel like she wasn't the best person, you know, I mean, I don't feel like she was a great mom, quote unquote mom, but she was my mom and I loved her. And I, I now knowing it's like, I could have, I could have raised him. I could have done. Okay. I would have been all right, but nobody said that. And, and, and I think that that needs to happen. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's see. So I ended up getting to meet the family after um, 
after he was placed um, with them, and it was before the adoption was completely finalized, uh, we we ended up meeting at the agency that a couple came in with their older son, uh, who was also adopted, but they did not bring Michael with because they thought it would just be too hard for all of us. Um, and in meeting them, what I discovered was a confirmation that I had chosen wisely. And that confirmation was specifically as it related to the father who was his letter was really the reason I chose him. There was just basically his letter filled every, every quality that I wanted. And then when I met them, um, just watching him in, in relation to his son, who was then four years old, um, John, and seeing how they interacted. And it was just, it was, it was ideal for me because one of the things that happened was we were talking and crying and all, you know, just really connecting um, at the, at the same time. And John was on the floor and he was coloring, he was in coloring a coloring book. And suddenly he looked up and he kind of stood up and he says, so my dad cries all the time. They're tears of joy. And I was struck by the fact it, it brought into focus for me the fact that here was a man who was capable and willing to both show his emotions, talk about his emotions with his son, and that they were all okay. And that was such an important piece for me to walk away and feel like this was amazing because all the men I had ever grown up with were, you know, stoic and violent and, you know, just all the negative, right? And he was really showing um, this incredibly positive side of what a father could be. And that was, that was wonderful. So after that, I went and got myself back into college. I would get updates once a year and it would be one that day when it would come would be like the most amazing thing to be able to get this envelope with this um, really usually a long letter lots of pictures. Um, I would sit with it. I would cry and cry and cry. I basically would lock myself in my own room. Um, I wouldn't share it with anybody. Um, this was something that was, I pretty much had dissociated from except for when the updates came and on his birthday and mother's day, you know, they were, there's just these little tiny windows. I would give myself permission. And, um, but the updates were, you know, it, it confirmed everything for me. They were they were showing how well he was growing. He had this wonderful life, and and things were beautiful, and and uh, and it, it just yeah. So I felt okay, but then they stopped. Then that update stopped, and um, when he was six, that update didn't show. So I waited um, like three weeks, and then I called the agency and I said, "There's something wrong here. You need to." To contact them because everything was done through the agency. There was no direct contact. And so the letter came about a month later, letter with the update, and it apologized for being late, et cetera, et cetera. And I was still okay. And then when he turned seven, the same thing happened. The update didn't come up. And I went to the agency again and same thing happened and it did eventually show up. And we turned eight, the same thing happened. And now every time this was happening was destroying me. It was like I was being it, it was horrible. It was so horrible to, to sit and wait for something and be so utterly disappointed. So when, at, when he turned eight, I went into the adoption agency in person 
And I'm like, you need to do something about this. You need to make sure that they're doing this on time because the, you know, and, and the person that I talked to said, well, you know, you don't have any recourse. You signed away your rights a long time ago. They don't have to send you updates if they don't want to. And I'm like, because that was not how it was presented to me. It was presented like this was, and you know, not that it was a law, quote unquote, but it was, this was a, this was a binding agreement. And the fact that I was told there, I had no recourse whatsoever destroyed me. And, and so you I, had an open adoption and your boyfriend closed his file. So that's correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that is correct. So, so yeah, so I didn't get any more updates um, until two days before his 18th birthday. And that update um, arrived and I was living, by then I was in Alaska, I had been in Alaska for a long time. And I remember pulling out the mail and looking and I, you know, again, an envelope that had, you know, just a, a, a first initial, last initial address from Minnesota, you know, basically a, a manila envelope. I mean, no identifying, it was thick, very thick. And I'm like, oh my God. I knew, like right away, as soon as I looked at it, I knew it was an update, even though I hadn't had one in over 10 years, right? And uh, so I went home and I did the exact same thing I did when I was younger, which was, you know, I laid everything out and I looked at every picture and I read the letter. And, and I what I discovered was um, um, his mom, his adoptive mom had passed away when he was 10. She had um, some some illnesses, um, some some difficulties and um, and I believe now, looking back, that was why the update stopped, that there was some, some uh, mental health issues going on. And um, so David, who's the dad, basically, it was like this long five-page letter just saying, I'm so sorry, um, you know, but this is, this is what happened, and this is what we've been doing, and this is our life, and this is, you know, all of these things. And then at the very end of the letter, I had a phone number said, if you would like to call, Michael would like to reconnect. And I just about went through the roof, right? And I called my husband, who, who my husband, Tom, is, he's known me since I was, before I was pregnant. And he's actually the only person who really showed me a lot of kindness when I was pregnant. Um, at, at eight months, right after I had decided to, to relinquish, I saw him at the mall and he came over to my house and he sat with me and I, and I shared with him what I was doing. And I cried and cried and cried. And he just sat with me and he just held my hand and he didn't judge me or anything. And, uh, and then he held my tummy. And so he's really the only person outside of family that really got to experience Michael when I was pregnant. Right. But my husband, so I called Thomas home, you need to come home. You need to read this. And, and he read through the letter and looked at the pictures and he says, so are you going to call? <laughs> And I said, absolutely, I'm going to call right now. Uh, you know, we're three hours earlier in Alaska, so it wasn't too late to call in Minnesota. And, and so, yeah, so I talked to David and, um, and I, you know, wanted to talk to Michael. That's why I wanted to talk to him. I didn't really want to talk to David, although he was great. But I was like, I really want to talk to Michael. But I tried to hold myself in check and, until finally I was like, okay, is he there? Can I talk to him? And, and he was. So, we talked on the phone for the first time and um, and it was so awkward and I didn't know what to say and he didn't know what to say. And, and I, I like I reverted to my 21 year old self. I went right back to that place. And, and and it was just it was so hard and beautiful. And it was amazing to hear his voice. And and he finally was like, OK, can we maybe 
do this by email. <laughs> I'm like, Absolutely. That's so great. Thank you. Because I didn't know. I didn't know how to do it. I was so completely out of my element. Right. And uh, so so after that, we started uh, emailing infrequently, very infrequently, which I what I want to do. I told Thomas, OK, let's move back to Minnesota. I'm going to buy a house right next door. And I just I <laughs> grab him and I don't ever want to let him go. That's, you know, that's what I want to do. And Tom's like, no, 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 no. You need, you need to rein that in right now. You're going to scare the heck out of him and freak him out. And I'm like, but, 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 but um, Tom was a voice of reason that really helped me uh, rein that in because I now know that had I done that, I would have definitely scared him away. Um, but we intermittently I, I left everything to, to Michael to, to make the decision how we con would contact each other. Um, and I, I, I didn't push, um, but I wanted to. And then when he turned 20, he asked to meet in person. So we met, uh, got to hold my son in my arms. And it was amazing. This, this, he was a big boy man that looked just like me, but he also looked just like his dad. Um, his adopted dad, which was kind of odd and weird. Um, but yeah, it was, we had the most beautiful day. Um, still remains the most beautiful day, I think, in my whole life. And then we went back and he pulled back after that, which I understand is fairly normal. And I just, I just stayed with it. I did the same thing and let him really, um, really guide the, guide the relationship. But then when he was 23, he, died in his sleep. Um, no known cause. He, that we did autopsies, all of that, and there's no reason. Um, and I suddenly was forced with grieving him again, but I hadn't really grieved him the first time. So the journey to try to rectify or try to try to deal with both of these extreme losses is really what my book is about, is how it took me years and years and years because I hadn't done the grieving way back when and because just, just all-consuming. <clears throat> and what I've come to see is that adoption loss, at least for me, was very similar to loss of him when he died. There were so many similarities and nobody talks about it. There's so little that is, is, is understood and recognized in the fact that, you know, losing your child to adoption is a horrendous loss. And there's so much that's talked about it being, you know, that adoption is beautiful and wonderful and rainbows and unicorns. And you know what? It can be. There's a part of it that can be. But it begins with this horrible severance of a mother from a child. Do you think and because you didn't have that opportunity to grieve your loss. I mean, you, you talk about wanting to be done and, and being on your friend's couch and just like erasing it after crying for that, that stint. And then, um, just forgetting about it, but your memories are so vivid. Like you're, it's so detailed and you remember everything specific and maybe it's just because you didn't have that opportunity to grieve. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Cause when, like when I was writing the book and trying to, I, I, tried to bring myself back there. I mean, it was all right there. It's it, like right at the tip of my tongue. And, and that surprised me, actually. I was surprised by that. I mean, but yeah, I think because I had just completely dissociated from it, it's all mm -hmm. still there. 
but you just, it, it, it was like this, this wall that I put up that wouldn't let me, let me go there. But it was um, right on the other side, because I can say was, from reading your book, it was like, it was just yesterday. The yes. details, I couldn't believe how I, yeah. I read it because I read it, but it was very detailed and um, just pulled you right in. Like we were in your shoes almost as we read it. Yes. And, and that's how close to the surface your loss was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, writing it and, and putting it out there, that is what I was glad I was able to do that because that's what I think is missing is people don't have a real understanding of what it's like to have to, to be, to be put into a position where you're, you're, you you have this unplanned pregnancy, you're alone, you're broke. I mean, how do you actually make that kind of a decision? How does someone actually choose to, to give away their baby? And, and I still look at it now and go, how did that even happen? You know, I, I don't still sometimes don't understand it, you know, in, in the aftermath of it. I mean, he has a wonderful family, he, he, you know, his family, who I'm very, very close to now. We we're very close um, and which I'm so fortunate because basically they they hold everything that remains of Michael and they're totally willing to share it with me. And when I see them, when I sit at their table, they don't see me necessarily. They see Michael because I, he looked just like me. Right. So, so we have this really amazing and beautiful relationship and like they, them reading my book, they're like, wow, we, we did, we knew that there was sadness, but we didn't understand what you went through until we read that book. That, that again, it's, it's so the, the birth mother, the birth parent experience um, is, is just not, it's not recognized or understood. Right. So, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why your book is so valuable, I think. Um, so on Thank this you. side, you're welcome. Um, so on this side of your adoption journey, are you a proponent of adoption or are you a proponent of keeping? I am a solid family preservationist. Um, I think that every single effort should be made to keep um, children with their family. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be the parent. If the parent is dangerous or, you know, if, if it's unsafe for the child, clearly not. But I believe there, there should be more efforts. And I, I do think it's getting better. More efforts to keep the child within the, the kin, a kinship situation, a guardianship. Um, I think the, one of the biggest problems um, with adoption specifically is the erasure of a child's identity. Um, in order for an adoption to happen in the United States, a birth certificate is legally changed. The old one is put away and a new one is issued. Now there's no other type of situation in our society, in, our, in the laws where you can create a false document that's legal. That's a good point. There's no other, there's no mm-hmm. other place. I have, I haven't found it anyway. So I think that that's a problem. Um, I think there's lots of things that we could do to improve uh, adoption. I think there's lots of problems, but again, I, I'm not saying that, that, that there can't be beauty in adoption because there can be, 
but we need to really be recognizing that it begins on the the it, it, the foundation is trauma. Um, you know, so many of the studies now and things that are that are coming out are talking about you know this loss that happens for children who are taken from their parents, no matter what age, even if they're pre-verbal, they are experiencing this extreme loss. So what we need to do, if we're going to continue to have adoption, we need to arm everyone that's involved with information on how to look for warning signs if people are having problems. So like adoptive parents, in addition to having their own counseling before they go into adoption, because a lot of them come into it from a place of loss, infertility, et cetera, they need to deal with their own things first. And then if they're going to go through this, they need to be given the tools and things to be able to learn how to communicate with their children openly and honestly. They, it should never be a secret um, that first families should be a part of their lives, whether they're ideal people or not, because that is their origin, family of origin. Um, and they need to be, again, have the tools to look for warning signs because with, with, Adopted people, there are they're they're like four times more likely to commit suicide than the general population. You know, they're they're more highly represented in mental health um, institutions. Um, so there's all these things that are showing that we need to be able to identify early on to be able to give the help that's needed, rather than waiting till after the fact. And that's you know, if if an adoption is going to happen, that's what we need to be doing. Candace, I wanted to touch base again. We didn't, we kind of left when he passed away in his sleep at 23 and didn't really talk more about your grieving process and the family. So do you want to just explain or tell us about that whole process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he, he passed away in early July and the being in Alaska, long, long ways away, from Minnesota um, created its own problems. Uh, so trying to, when we got the call that he had passed away, um, it had already been uh, like two days um, since he had passed. So, you know, David, uh, his adoptive dad called to let us know. And, and he was like, I'm sorry, I didn't call you right away. I mean, obviously he was in the throes of, of extreme grief, right? And I was like, okay, well, I need to go. I, I want to be there. And, and he's like, absolutely. So we had like one day to get down there, which is really hard to do, right? So Tom, my husband was able to get us down in time. Actually, we made, I, we found out the morning of 4th of July. Um, and we flew into Minneapolis as the fireworks. We were landing as the fireworks were blooming all over the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And, uh, and it was just this unbelievable to have this extreme sadness and then have this celebratory thing happening. It was kind of surreal. Um, but we got there in time. And when we went to um, David's house, now I now take, take into consideration, I'd only met David once with Michael. So we had had that one day. But when I showed up, uh, Tom and I showed up, automatic open arms uh, to bring us in. And we came in at the house um, and we, we spent the, the, the day with them there. Then we went to the wake and everybody, David, his whole family, everybody, as I met people, because I hadn't met the extended family, I was introduced as his mom. This is Michael's mom. 
And I had never really embraced my motherhood at all. Um, so that was quite the experience for me. But everybody was so welcoming and so wonderful. Um, and I think looking back at it now, I would be nowhere near where I am in my in my grieving recovery if it hadn't been for their openness and willing to willingness to bring me in and be a part of that. Um, that that ritual of being able to say goodbye to somebody um, is so important. And I think that's part, you know, again, that is a big part of how I was able to come to where I am right now. And in the months following, I mean, I was, I was really lost. I was, I, 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 most people that have lost someone very close, uh, particularly people who lost children, it's like, you just, you, you can't eat, you can't think, you know, you're, nothing works, right? Um, and I just was flailing because I was looking for help. I, now I lived in remote Alaska, so I don't have access to, you know, therapy and support services, right? So I was looking online for things and I would go to Compassionate Friends, um, which is for people that have lost their children. And I found some good stuff there. But whenever I was talking to somebody online, they'd be like, you know, oh, they could understand. But then they'd ask a question like, well, tell us about him. What was he like? And I didn't know. I didn't know anything. So I would, I would now be confronted with a second layer of grief because I, not, I'd lost him, but I don't know him. How do, you, how do you grieve that, right? And I just looked for help and I, it was so difficult. And finally, I was like, you know what? There's one person who knows exactly how I'm feeling and that's David. And I reached out to him with an email and he emailed him right back. And we just started connecting back and forth and sending letters back and forth. And, and, and it, has turned into just this really um, beautiful um, flow between us. Um, we went down uh, like four months after uh, Michael passed and we spent the weekend with them at their house. We went through some of Michael's things um, over the years. I mean, every time we go to Minnesota, that's where we go. We go to, to David's house. Um, uh, and often I'll pick their house before I pick my family's house, right? And they've come up to Alaska and, and with the whole family has come up to, to do a vacation up here. And, you know, that, that was amazing because it was, I felt like this was how I brought Michael to Alaska with me, just having them there. They represented him. And, uh, you know, and now with the book coming out and deciding to write this book, completely supportive, absolutely 100% supportive and sharing my story and telling my story. And, and um, you know, so there, with a memoir, you have the option to, to change people's names, to, to protect identities. And they, they were like, no, but this is who we, we want our real names, right? Um, I had other people in my family who didn't want their real names, but they all, every single one of the family that are in the book said, yes, we want to use our real names. And, and it's just this, it's family. We're family. And Michael did that for us. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have them and to have access to them. Oh, that is so beautiful. All right. Um, it really is. And I think others will learn a lot from you so it's so great that you've been able to share your story thank yes. you thank the you pain thank and the good <laughs> yeah thank you for, yeah. thank you so much for being here thank you so much for joining us today for let's talk please subscribe rate and review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon